Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. If you're listening to us live on the radio at 9 o'clock, not a repeat at 2 or on the podcast, you probably would have heard a few minutes ago uh, in NPR News the uh, mention of the fact that today is equal pay day for women, the day in the current year that women finally catch up to what men earned in the previous year. Um, And, you know, last week we did a show on International Women's Day in which we pointed out that in 2000, women earned 80 cents for every dollar that a man earned. And 20 some years later, boy, things have changed. Now, basically, women are earning 82 cents for every dollar that a man is learning. The pay discrepancy is, it strikes me as unacceptable. And uh, we spent a good deal of time talking about it last week. It also reminds me um, that it's worth mentioning that yesterday, Patricia Schroeder, Pat Schroeder, who was a feminist legislator who blazed trails for women during her time in Congress, she came out of Colorado. She helped pass the 1978 Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which barred employers from uh, dismissing women because they were pregnant and from denying them maternity benefits. She championed laws that helped reform household pensions. She opened military jobs to women. She forced federally funded medical researchers to um, include women in their research and so much more. I spent time with her in Colorado back in 1987 when she was looking at running for president. Gary Hart had just dropped out because of his scandal and Pat Schroeder was uh, being urged to run. It was really something to spend time with her. She ultimately decided not to run. Um, And uh, in announcing uh, that she wasn't going to run, she broke down because she said it suddenly occurred to her how much it would have meant to women if she had been able to make the race. And ironically, for a long time afterward, given all she'd done to give equal footing to women, Uh, She was remembered for being a woman who uh, cried at a public event. In any case, Pat Schroeder died yesterday, and it's interesting. It comes a day before Equal Pay Day for Women. All right, enough about that. Let's get right to the panel because we have a lot to talk about. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the AJC is senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. How are you, Tamar? Hi, Bill. Uh, I've been spending the last couple of minutes reading about Pat Schroeder's uh, pretty remarkable time in Congress and to see uh, how much things have changed and how much things have not changed. She a pretty remarkable stories in her obituary. You would have loved covering her during your years on Capitol Hill. She had an amazing wit. Um, one of her jokes when, when Dan Quayle was named to George H.W. Bush's uh, presidential ticket, She said, uh, Dan Quayle thinks that Roe v. Wade are alternative ways of crossing the Potomac River to get to work. Uh, And that was kind of typical of her uh, sense of humor. Stephen Fowler 
is back with us. He, of course, is a GPB News political reporter. How have you been, Stephen? Busy, but uh, in a couple of different ways. One, preparing for a baby coming uh, in May. That's uh, a lot harder than a lot of election coverage, honestly. (laughs) But also following (laughs) some of the bigger bills through the legislature. There's always voting legislation. There's some other high-profile things going through. Recently did a deep dive on the new Prosecutor Oversight Commission. So, you know, even in a sort of slower year like this year, there's always something and there's always something surprising. Yeah, I I think that makes complete sense. Uh, This has been an interesting session. Uh, Chuck Cook, who is one of the country's top immigration lawyers and was just named again as one of the top lawyers in the state of Georgia. Uh, Chuck, if if Fowler thinks that it's a lot of work preparing for a baby to be born, wait till they bring the baby home from the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Wait till that fourth one comes and then you realize how hard it really is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank thank you so much for being with us today, Chuck. You're welcome. And Fred Smith uh, from Emory University, professor of law at Emory, is here as well. Fred, thank you. We're so glad to have you back. You doing well? Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to be here and, uh, and both learn about and talk about <laughs> the news. All right. Let's get started on doing just that. Uh, Tomorrow, we spent a lot of time on the show yesterday talking about uh, all the events surrounding the Atlanta Police Training Center and about the shooting death of Manuel uh, Turan. Um, And we mentioned that there was going to be a news conference um, after our show went off the air yesterday by uh, the parents and lawyers for the family. So I I want to do a little of that today to catch people up. but we will just do it in a somewhat abbreviated form. Um, So, Tamar, as a starting point, we should say that um, the attorneys for the family, what they simply said is they had an independent autopsy, they didn't learn as much as they'd hoped they would learn, and now they're filing suit to get the city of Atlanta to release more information, get it from the GBI, get it from the Cab County authorities, um, they feel as if they're being denied information they must have. Yeah, and some of the things that their independent examination they say shows is is that Manuel was potentially sitting down when he was killed, maybe cross-legged, and that he might have been holding his hands up in front of his face. Um, and so those are interesting details. I mean, the problem is that you know, we, you know, we, we don't know anything from GBI and their autopsy of, of what happened. And the autopsy that the family was able to perform was quite limited because of the extensive autopsy that, that GBI um, and the DeKalb med- medical examiner had done. And so that makes it really hard to know for sure until law enforcement provides their account. And unfortunately, it's looking like it might be months before we really get a full sense of the story. And I'm sure for a family that's mourning the loss of a son, that's an incredibly hard answer to to hear, and um, it may be a while before we we truly know what transpired. Stephen, I want to play a couple sound bites from that news conference, and then ask you to weigh in. Um, uh, Manuel Turan uh, was uh, autopsied first by it was autopsied by the DeKalb County Medical Examiner, and again, those records have not been released at this point. Um, and as Tamar points out, the uh, uh, 
autopsy, the independent autopsy of Turan, uh, was somewhat inconclusive, according to the family. But let's listen to attorneys Brian Spears and then Jeff Flipovitz as they uh, talked yesterday about how much information the family thinks they still deserve to have. This second autopsy is a snapshot of what happened, but it is not the whole story. What we want is simple. GBI, meet with the family and release the investigative report. The only people who know what happened in the forest that day are the officers who are present and the GBI who is investigating. The GBI has repeatedly declined to meet with us, to talk to us, or to present any evidence to us. In fact, they have also prevented the release of information by the city of Atlanta. After the city of Atlanta began releasing videos of the day they were clearing the forest, the city of Atlanta stopped. And the reason they stopped is because the GBI told them to. We have filed a lawsuit concerning the refusal of the city to provide records on an ongoing basis. Stephen? Yeah, so some of the issue here is that uh, there is this demand for information from the family, from the public, and from others that the agencies investigating what happened won't release until it's complete. Uh, some of the issue is that the agency, in this case the GBI, investigating the incident was also involved with the task force responsible for doing the sweep of the forest that led to the shooting. So there's an inherent distrust of the investigation process and what people are saying from the official end. And there is also this piece where uh, when you think of a lot of high profile incidents where you see police violence and where you see people being beaten or people being killed by the police, it's there is video evidence that is released that shows what happened in the uh, lead up, the incident and the aftermath. And that's not something that can be had in this case because the Georgia State Patrol did not have body cameras on. And so any information that's released, that's a piece of the puzzle, be it this secondary autopsy or the video from Atlanta police officers or where elsewhere in the forest, tells a part of the picture and the story that is not necessarily complete. And so the GBI, from their perspective, wants to keep everything close to the vest until they finish the investigation, supposedly. But the family wants answers about what happened to their family member. And so there's this inherent conflict with the facts of the case that make it difficult for people to accept just, uh, we'll wait and see what the GBI says, and the family wants answers, and that's what this lawsuit is. But it's also a situation where because there's no video evidence, I don't think any of the parties involved will ever really know exactly what happened and be satisfied with it. Fred, uh, the GBI released a statement. Actually, their statement came before the news conference, but here's what they said. The GBI continues to work diligently to protect the integrity of the investigation and will turn our findings over to an appointed prosecutor for review and action. The actions of the GBI to prevent inappropriate release of evidence are solely intended to preserve the integrity of the investigation and to ensure the facts of the incident are not tainted. Jump in on this, Fred. Sure. Right. So uh, what the state is relying on um, is a set of exceptions to the Open Records Act. Uh, so uh, under a statute, um, 50 
Um, there's a number of exceptions, and uh, one of those exceptions deals with uh, ongoing pending uh, criminal investigations, which they seem to be relying on uh, here. Um, in the public statements from the family, um, they note that a lot of statements have already been made, some kind of conclusory statements um, uh, about uh, the investigation in terms of um, whether or not there was a gun, where the where the gun came from if Tort, in fact, uh, had a gun with him, um, and uh, statements that they seem to, at least in the reports and in the, in the news, seem to have kind of walked back some around um, whether or not uh, he had, in fact, uh, shot said gun. Um, and, so, uh, and, and so given that those statements have, made, have been made, that the, from the perspective of the family, um, it's already, uh, our statements have already been made about the investigation that are affecting the public perception of it. Um, and so they see it as a matter of fairness, in their view, um, for the autopsy to be uh, released so that people can kind of form uh, stronger judgments. But um, so that's the law uh, that's being applied. And those are some of the equities that the, that the family is uh, pushing back with. Chuck, you know, Bill, as, as somebody who you know is constantly against the government on different issues, the, the one thing I've learned is when the government doesn't release information, it seems the sentiment is you're hiding something. Why are you hiding something? Um, just release the information and let let the public or let the, the party decide what's best. And it's this classic mistake that I see governments make all the time, whether it's the federal or it's the state level, is trying to decide that when it is best in their opinion to release something, as opposed to just getting the information out so that people can make their own decisions. Yeah, you know, Tamar, it, it, I, what, well, to pick up on what Chuck says, I mean, it isn't as if we don't have examples from cities all over the country where there have been questionable police shootings, of, usually of black men, and the community rises up and demands answers. And we've seen how various jurisdictions have responded to that, some by quickly moving to make as much public as possible, and in other cases, uh, not being willing to release, uh, whether it's uh, body cam footage or or uh, eyewitness uh, statements about it. And here, given the controversy is already growing over the planned police training center, you do have to wonder if this is being handled in the best way in terms of the larger picture of all of this. Yeah, I mean, it creates an information vacuum and people are going to kind of fill it in based on, you know, whatever biases they may have. And in the meantime, I don't think it's going to tamp down any potential protests or kind of other activism surrounding this police training center as, as people wait to hear what what exactly happened. Um, I wonder if we could see proposals um, in the legislature one day to uh, force state troopers to use body cams uh, or, or something of the like. Uh, and before I go back to you, I want to apologize. I misgendered uh, Manuel uh, Tehran. He, uh, they use they, yeah. them pronouns. So I, I want to apologize for that. Well, th you know, um, th thank you. Um, and it, it, it is true that there are times when our brains, as we try to na navigate this world, um, have to be <laughs> realigned. I went through that uh, yesterday on the show. Um, but thank you for doing that. All right. We'll see how this all unfolds. As I said, we went into it in much more extensive detail on the show yesterday, but I wanted to update what had happened since the news conference. And Stephen, I'd like to turn to another story that we spent considerable amount of time on yesterday, and that's the one bill remaining 
uh, in the legislature right now that would deal with uh, medical treatments for transgendered uh, young people. Um, uh, uh, Jeff Graham, the EEC, uh, uh, head of Georgia Equality, was on the show yesterday, and he hinted that uh, there was going to be a letter delivered to the legislature today from a large number of medical professionals, healthcare providers, uh, opposing the legislation that would prevent most treatments that would allow young people to begin the process or complete the process of, of, of transferring to the gender that they feel is appropriate for them. The letter went out yesterday, <coughs> excuse me, 500 healthcare uh, uh, workers in the state signed it. And here's just uh, one uh, part of that letter. The medical professionals have a message for lawmakers, and it's this. We'll tell you what we tell the parents of transgender kids who visit our clinics. You don't need to understand everything about what it's like to be transgender to know that all kids deserve to be healthy and safe. When it comes to family decisions about health care, we work hard to give parents all the information they need to make informed choices and to respect each family's unique circumstances and decisions. Politicians shouldn't be in the room for private family conversations like this. Stephen? Yeah, I mean, this this bill, this bill is um, a version of bills that you're seeing in a lot of states right now and Republican led states where lawmakers are looking to ban or extremely restrict some healthcare access for minors and minors who are transgender. Um, this bill comes at a time where uh, it really is one of the main cultural fronts that the Republican Party is taking up, both nationally and locally, um, trying to push back against what they say. Like, you know, the bill sponsor and Republicans that support this legislation say that, you know, children are too young. You know, those under 18 are too young to make permanent decisions about their health care. Uh, but it, it's really a case where in the state Senate where this bill originated and passed, uh, I, I think there was really good speech from Senator Sally Harrell, who has a transgender child, who explained kind of the, I think she said at first, like, you know, if a bill like this would have been effect, maybe I would have liked it at the time because I needed more time to understand. But as I, the parent, spent time with my child talking and understanding, like, there's no way I can support this. Her point was that you can't legislate taking away health care and taking away this access without offering something in its stead. And this bill, what it would do is tell doctors and medical providers things that they can't do, but not really do anything to address any underlying uh, health issues or any other things that for children, for transgender children, is simply health care to them. You know, Chuck, I, I thought that one of the most compelling sentences in this letter, I'm going to read it again, uh, because I really do think it's, it's, it's worth being, being emphasized. The letter says, you don't need to understand everything about what it's like to be transgender, to know that all kids to be, you deserve to be healthy and safe. And the reason I think that's such an important sentence is because we, I think many people struggle to understand the complicated issues 
around uh, transgender individuals and what it is that uh, encourages that that makes them feel that they are in the wrong gender from birth. And so I thought that sentence was particularly important, an acknowledgement that, yep, you may not understand this, but at least understand this, this is for the safety and health of these young people. You know, Stephen mentioned Sally Harrell's speech, uh, and, and honestly, people should watch it because it was very moving, but not moving enough to change the votes in the Senate. And I don't think it would be, in, even if she went over to the House and gave the speech, it's not going to be enough to change the votes in the, in the House because this is a political issue. This isn't about health care for children. This isn't about uh, stopping uh, children from, from changing their gender. This is about politics. <clears throat> it's, it's all it's about. And that's why there's no positive answer in this bill. That's why there's no solution offered in this bill, because it's not about solutions. It's about keeping an issue in the public uh, forum that you can run a campaign on. Um, you know, it'd be great to ask one of these politicians sponsors, well, what do you suppose we should do for these children? Because just because you want to ignore it doesn't mean it's going to go away. I mean, that's the question that needs to be asked and, and be made to answer because just proposing bills to stop something isn't a solution to most anything. Uh, Fred, we pointed out on the show yesterday that a Pew Trust report uh, suggested, and this came out just in February, that more than half the states have Republican-backed bills that would uh, block transgender uh, treatments for young people. So when Chuck makes a point it's political, it certainly is. Yeah, I mean, there are 385 bills uh, as of six days ago. The number may be up uh, across the country targeting LGBTQ people right now, right? So that doesn't happen by accident. Uh, and uh, a lot of them are uh, aimed specifically at trans youth, uh, so, but it's not even just trans youth, right? So uh, it's in some of the states, uh, the bills go up to the age of 21, right? Um, and so and it's kind of, it's hard to imagine that if they get if 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 they're successful there that that's going to be um, the end of it. Um, the initial there was an initial bill in Tennessee. It changed over time, um, but but it began as an anti-drag bill that certainly could have also been used uh, against trans people in the state of Tennessee. Um, so this is a concerted um, effort across the country, uh, and um, Senator Harrell's uh, speech was very moving and does kind of center. Uh, what's going on here, which is that the government is attempting to get involved in very, very deeply personal uh, family decisions um, that um, they know very little about. Another speech that was given on the Senate floor uh, was by Senator Kim Jackson, um, who noted the effect that this is having on the mental health of LGBTQ youth all the time when they turn on the news, when they, when they see someone at CPAC say that they want to eliminate transgenderism. Right. Um, which uh, if we if, if said about almost any other group um, would, uh, would would sound uh, like really words of extermination that should cause extreme alarm, in my view. Um, and it's affecting the youth. And what and what Senator Jackson said is, um, look, you know, the senators are saying that some of these treatments can have long term you know, permanent life consequences. Um, and she said, you know what else does? Suicide. Um, and so I very much hope that the folks in the legislature, the ones who are doing this for predominant political reasons, um, 
that they find it in their hearts to see the human scale of what they're up to and just ask themselves, is it really worth it? Um, tomorrow, we're going to get to a break, but one last uh, uh, word on this. I believe I'm right, and somebody please correct me, whether you're a listener um, or or someone out there who can, can go on social media. I believe Governor Kemp is supportive of this measure, and, and so there doesn't seem to be much that's going to stop it from uh, uh, passing and going to his desk for signature. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm not sure exactly the governor's feelings about that, but he did <clears throat> sign legislation last year um, that would force transgender kids to compete in the high school sport aligned with their gender at birth and not the gender that they align with. So this feels like a, a continuation of that, but this isn't high school sports. This is medical care. Um, this is a, a much different ball game. And, you know, when we're talking about some of the most vulnerable people in our society, and I, this statistic is something like trans kids are three times more likely to commit suicide. I mean, they're just very startling numbers. And so when you hear from folks, um, you know, criticizing measures like this, um, facts like that are, are front and center. Stephen, final word from you on all this. I mean, it's it's one of those things where this, this bill, uh, this bill is brought forth by people that are not experts in even the field of healthcare, uh, let alone don't have a lot of experience with <laughs> trans children, trans adults, things like that. And it's legislation that is is proof that, you know, th there's a lot of criticism and there's a lot of things like there are a lot of things lawmakers could be spending their time in the Capitol dealing with for 40 days. And a lot of the people that are opposed to this bill, uh, activist groups and other people like that, you know, I've pointed out the myriad other things that lawmakers could be doing to deal with healthcare issues and healthcare deficiencies and healthcare problems in the state. But uh, choosing to focus on this and choosing to focus on telling doctors what they can't do and telling children that they can't receive a certain type of care that is basic healthcare uh, doesn't send the best message for people about what lawmakers are choosing to spend their time with, especially with all of other Georgia's healthcare issues. All right, let's do this. Thank you for those uh, final remarks of this segment, uh, Stephen. Let's get to the first break. We'll be back with more in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Chuck Cook, Fred Smith, Stephen Fowler, and Tamar Hallerman join me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Chuck, let's go to you. Uh, you alerted all of us yesterday afternoon that this morning at 8 o'clock, a Senate committee was going to meet to uh, consider a measure that, and you'll make it even more specific, but I'll say in general, would prevent certain migrants, or migrants I assume from certain countries, from buying property within 25 miles of a military installation in Georgia or an airport. Um, t talk about this bill and where it comes from. 
Well, this actually <laughs> is a Senate bill that actually passed the Senate already, SB 132, at a House hearing today. Uh, and basically, oh. it's it's designed to limit the ability of anybody, anybody, not just migrants, anybody who's not a citizen or permanent resident of the United States uh, from buying ag land in the state of Georgia. If, and there's other caveats here, clearly written by somebody who's not an immigration lawyer, uh, that if you are out, even if you're a resident and you're out of the country for more than two months, you can't buy the land. So I mean, this is this is a crazy bill, but like the bill on transgender, this is a bill that's working its way through a variety of different states around the United States, controlled by Republicans. Uh, Texas was big on this. And they, they list specific countries individual citizens who cannot buy land. And they come from uh, a list prepared by the Department of State um, called the Countries of Particular Concern. Now, interestingly enough, this list is for countries that come out of um, the State Department's watch list on religious freedom. So it's they, they're, they're, they're China, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan, because you know all people of Tajikistan coming to buy land in Georgia. Um, those people are the ones that can't buy land. The bigger question is, who is who's going to be in charge of this? Who's they're going to look at every property record in the state of Georgia? I mean, this is this is a crazy bill. Um, so Fred Smith, first of all, uh, <laughs> is is this is this ripe for if it passes? <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that it had already passed the Senate. It was in the House. If this should pass and get signed by the governor, is is this uh, ripe for an immediate? A challenge as to its constitutionality. Uh, yes. <laughs> so um, there's 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 two that uh, there's two sets of challenges that immediately come to mind. Uh, so one is structural, and one is uh, more about rights. Um, so structurally, uh, typically when the, when states get involved in questions of immigration, um, especially if it deals with something around kind of um, registration and the like, um, there's some space in which the federal government um, preempts whatever the state has done. And so I, I would need to read closer to know whether or not that's at play here, but I would imagine that one set of challenges will sound there. The other challenges will be an equal protection challenge. Um, and so uh, Typically, if a government is discrimination, discriminating on the basis of national origin, um, that's subject to the highest levels of, uh, of scrutiny. Um, and also when a state is discriminating on the basis of alienage, that is whether or not someone is or isn't a citizen, that also typically is subject to the highest levels of, of judicial scrutiny. Um, so I'd imagine that all of those uh, arguments are going to be uh, at play here. Uh, Stephen, I don't think it's much of a stretch to suggest that the uh, legislators supporting this measure are worried about uh, the potential for disruptions, terrorism, or the like from those non-citizens who might want to buy land uh, 25 miles away from a military installation. Well, I, I mean, so there are so there are several states that do have laws relating to foreign ownership of agricultural land. Uh, they vary because, you know, different states have different laws. Some of them have variations on it being not necessarily a foreign national person, but maybe like a foreign corporation. Uh, some of them have variations on how much land and things like that. But there are a number of reasons. Actually, the USDA has some interesting reports on foreign ownership of U.S. agricultural land 
you know, there there are many reasons either for land speculation or things like that. But some of the concern or, or some of the stated concern for looking into things like that is a, a belief that countries like China or other uh, powers that kind of jostle with the United States on the global stage are buying up agricultural land near military bases and other things as some sort of staging area to either, you know, yes, to drive up the prices of the agricultural land and goods that are on there or to, uh, you know, do something to threaten the military bases that are around that don't really pan out. But there are some underlying legitimate concerns about, you know, say, uh, having local Georgia agricultural land and companies be bought out by like uh, some foreign company that then jacks up the prices and fires all the workers and does things to disrupt things. So like it's it there is a kernel of reality and truth in this bill that maybe isn't expressed uh, the best way mm. with the current legislation. So, Ch Chuck, are we being too suspicious based on what Stephen's saying? Um, not so necessarily suspicious. It's just this is this is, seems to be a a solution in search of a problem kind of bill. Um, and um, what's interesting is that in today's hearing, it was it was literally a testimony that was taken. There was no votes. Uh, no one spoke in favor of the bill this morning. Nobody. Uh, there was uh, six groups testifying against it. Uh, so who supports the bill? I mean, that's you know the question is coming from somewhere. Again, it's a political agenda. Meant to get something on 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 the board, so you can say we took care of this problem that doesn't really exist. Okay, there are a couple of other uh, pretty big immigration stories in the news uh, that I want to come back to you on, Chuck, uh, in a few minutes. But before then, I, I, I want to deal with a couple more uh, stories uh, of immediate impact in Georgia. Uh, Tomorrow, very quickly, I think it's interesting to me that I read, I guess I started reading about it in the New York Times. We know that two Georgia lawyers now, Stefan Passantino has been in the news, uh, an Atlanta lawyer, he went to work for the Trump White House, he was initially the lawyer for Cassidy Hutchison as she prepared for her testimony before the January 6th committee. He presumably uh, uh, advised her not to be transparent uh, and too forthcoming with the committee, she dismissed him, and now the Washington Bar wants him disbarred because of how he handled her uh, testimony. But now we have a second lawyer uh, who's come to light as well here in Georgia. So uh, give us a little on, the, on that story. Well, sure. The first one about Stefan Passantino. These are some revelations we saw after the January 6th committee released the transcripts from Cassidy Hutchison's um, uh, deposition with the committee. And, you know, it was interesting to kind of hear the behind the scenes details of it because she was unemployed at the time that he was brought on to represent her. But he, you know, and he sort of alluded to the fact that depending on the type of testimony she might give, there might be a job for her in Trump world. He, he wasn't forthcoming about who exactly was paying for his legal services in order to represent Cassidy Hutchison. Um, and she, she says, while he did not advise her to lie to the committee, he did tell her that that being able to say you did not recall something or you can't remember that that's an acceptable answer. And so he might have encouraged her to not look back at some of her notes or her calendars from that time. So it, it's kind of a legal gray area where 
you know, you aren't supposed to lie to a, a jury or to investigators, but if you don't remember stuff, that's not necessarily perjury, but, but where's the line in terms of what lawyers can rep- recommend to their clients. So it'll be very interesting to see where the, the bar comes down on that. And, and Pasentino has, uh, uh, has been very um, strenuously uh, objecting to to the way that he was he's been per- portrayed in this complaint. And then you're right, Bill. Over the weekend, we saw a story from the New York Times that uh, revealed a new witness that we didn't know had testified before the special purpose grand jury. Um, and that was uh, Bob Cheeley. He's a longtime criminal defense attorney here in Atlanta, um, known for representing very uh, high-profile Republican clients. It appears that the grand jury was interested in speaking to him because he testified before the state legislature in December 2020, uh, one at, at the last of three hearings that Rudy Giuliani gave testimony to and spouted off all sorts of conspiracy theories and half-truths and lies about the vote count in Georgia, tens of thousands of dead people voting, kids under 18, all (laughs) sorts of stuff. And Bob Cheeley raised what he saw as a lot of really, you know, what he saw as a lot of really terrible things happening at the time. Um, And so it's interesting to see just how memorable he was to some of the grand jurors. They quote Emily Kors, the the forewoman of the special grand jury, um, who seemed very familiar with his testimony even months later, uh, which raises the question, um, could he be subject to, to charges as a part of this investigation? And maybe these hearings are a bigger part of recommended charges than maybe we thought. Uh, Fred, we should point out that at least the first part of it, the fact that he was at Rudolph Giuliani's side when Giuliani came and testified in front of the state Senate uh, with all those outrageous charges about how uh, how corrupt the Georgia election was, uh, nobody has to uh, uh, take an oath to tell the truth in front of a Senate committee like that. So at, at least there's not any opportunity to charge them with uh, uh, lying in their testimony to a Senate committee, right? Right. So, well, yeah, so perjury in particular might be off the table, um, but other things like obstruction and some of the ethical um, charges, the, the fact that they were were not under oath um, wouldn't necessarily matter. It might be relevant, but it wouldn't be um the sine qua non. I was trying not to say that word, but the necessary condition. <laughs> Stephen? Well, and, and the other thing uh, that people might know if they pay close attention, Bob Cheeley is also the attorney for the group of election conspiracists who were trying to unseal and have access to the Fulton County ballots. He's the one that hired private security, the trip that alarm at the Fulton County ballot warehouse that led into a whole side conspiracy where people were thinking that Stacey Abrams was like repelling from the ceiling to swap out the real ballots with <laughs> fake ballots. He also represented David Perdue in some of the half-baked legal challenges. And so it's not just about the Senate hearings and you know the people there, but rather the sustained effort even months and years after the 2020 election to do things. So it's not surprising to learn that the special grand jury talked to him. And it's not surprising that he might play a bigger role than some of the more high profile names that people nationally might see and pay attention to. But he, Bob Cheeley, is definitely one of the attorneys in Georgia most involved with the aftermath and the continued attempts to say the election was stolen. All right. Well, we'll see how he's treated 
when Tamar Hallerman finally convinces Fonnie Willis it's time to go ahead and announce her indictments. We're waiting, Tamar. We're not sure why your influence hasn't had an impact quite yet, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, watch, we'll watch all that unfold. Let's get to our final break back. A couple of legislative stories. Then I want to ask Chuck Cook about a couple of big, big national immigration stories. This is Political Rewind. As everybody on this panel knows, and as we've said on the air a couple of times, even if a bill doesn't pass by a uh, uh, crossover day, it doesn't mean it's dead. Nothing's ever dead until the final gavel. Uh, and uh, Stephen Fowler, it's interesting that Speaker John Burns, in an appearance late last week in front of the Atlanta Press Club, uh, said that despite the fact that four bills that related to sports betting and maybe other forms of gambling had not made it to crossover day, he suggested that maybe sports betting isn't quite as dead as we thought. Well, you know, never say never until the final gavel bangs down, usually after midnight on signy die. But uh, I think what that says is that there are a lot of people that are paid lobbyists uh, that deal with sports betting that are getting their money's worth, bending the ear of the key people on committees and in leadership to do that. It's one of those things that... Uh, has been around for a long time. Momentum has seemed to build and fade and ebb and flow. And it's one of those issues that there is a lot at stake, both for people that want to see sports betting and gambling and also those who don't want to see. And so uh, it's one of those things that's not like, okay, we voted on it in one chamber, it failed, let's move on. Um, it's certainly something that a lot of people could be convinced to, if nothing else, bring it up again or attach it to something else. And so that sports betting is definitely one of the things that, you know, you're holding your breath for waiting for an 1148 p.m. vote or something along because it yeah. is such a big issue in a way that other things that failed maybe aren't. Well, thank you for that. We'll watch to see if that's, in fact, what happens. But tomorrow, uh, Speaker Burns said something about an even bigger issue. Um, he was asked about Medicaid expansion and the fact that Democrats particularly have pushed for full expansion. Republicans have resisted. But here's the quote that he gave to the press club. We have some ideas. I won't share them with you now, but we have some ideas in this space and we're going to work on them. We want to be new. We want to be innovative. I'm not sure it's traditional as we think of Medicaid expansion. But I want to tell you the ground is always shifting when it comes to what the government is involved in. That is really interesting. Yeah, we have no details on what he's what Republicans are thinking of. But here's the thing with medical Medicaid expansion. It is a pejorative to talk about pejorative term to talk about Medicaid expansion. It is uh very much tied up in the legacy of President Obama. And for Republicans, especially in the Deep South, it's not something you want to tie yourself to, uh, especially for years after you've been um, kind of hitting it and saying that it's too expensive and that's not what we want to do. At the same time, broadening who um, is going to get coverage is a popular idea. Um, folks are not opposed to um, helping out more people. And the idea of Medicaid expansion in general is is a pretty popular one. So I think you see Republicans kind of taking some of the rhetoric and some of the ideas, but maybe rebranding it in another way. So I'll be curious to see 
um, any new proposals that come out of that. Of course, in the, the limited waiver that we saw out of the Kemp administration, there were work requirements as a part of that, which is a classic Republican idea. Um, I wonder if there'll be something like that in any future proposals we may see. Um, or whether it's something that looks a little more like a traditional expansion in everything but name. Maybe you just call it something else. You know, Chuck, we know that uh, it used to be that if you talked about Obamacare, uh, the poll showed people were against it. If you talked about <laughs> affordable health care for all, they liked the idea a lot. Maybe they should call this uh, GOP health care for all. <laughs> we get somewhere. You know, I think really the key here is what are they talking about? Zimmer makes a good point. We have no idea what they're talking about. He could just literally right. be talking out the side of his head, you know, making yeah. stuff up. We just have no idea at this yeah. point. Uh, and that's sad because this is something that has to be addressed. I, I, I don't know when it became bad to make sure people were healthy. When did that become a bad thing? I just don't remember. All right, Chuck, let's talk about President Biden and the heat he's getting from some, well, from everybody, from his own Democratic Party, as well, of course, as Republicans on, on this, Biden is now suggesting that he may go back and uh, start again the policy that we began, I believe it was under the Trump administration, of uh, detaining families who come across the border illegally. Um, and this has caused an incredible uproar. It strikes me what it's really about is that there's no such thing as winning Republican president, Democratic president on the border unless Congress finally gets its act together and does something comprehensive. You know, the reality is president's never going to, no president's ever <laughs> going to fix this issue. Um, this, this is what I think they call in D.C. tomorrow a trial balloon. Uh, if we think we might do this, what might the public say? Well, the public was very angry about it the first time. In fact, there was this guy that tweeted about it. I think his name was Joe Biden, um, who said, it's horrible that they're detaining families and children in baby jails. Um, this was this was done, I think, to see to kind of test how how visceral the action would be from from those that represent immigrants um, in, in the context of detaining families. The, the harsh reality is they don't have any beds. They have no physical capacity to do this at this point. Congress hasn't allocated money for it. There's no place to put it. It's, it's more of a, more, we think, done as a threat to those on the other side of the border. Hey, if you come with your families, we're going to put you in jail. So the way that worked last time when Trump did it is what did families do? They just sent their kids alone. So they, this is not rocket science to figure out what the what would happen, but the the human toll would be extraordinary. Uh, and again, until Congress gets their buns in gear and fixes the problem, Biden's not going to fix this. He's not going to do this either. Fred, so I, I've given a lot of thought to the fact I just saw some new polling today early be, in the cycle that will lead us to the 2024 elections. Um, and uh, I think it was CNN poll. And, and it shows that, uh, not surprisingly, the economy is still the number one issue for Americans. It, but it shows immigration as second, as it often is. And Fred, I got to acknowledge the fact I'm puzzled by that. I can imagine if I lived at a, a, on the southern border, if I were in Arizona, if I were in Texas, you know, I can imagine that immigration would have an enormous impact. 
I have, I have to say I find it a little odd that it remains such a huge issue for people across the country. Now, maybe I'm just an outlier on that, but help me understand why. Yeah, I mean, well, to fully understand it, I would want to know, uh, you know were people responding the same way across the country. So the mere fact that it's number two doesn't tell us that it's the number two issue in, uh, in every state. It just tells us that when you aggregate it all together, um, that, it, that it was uh, the number two issue. Um, so that would, that would be one question. But in terms of why um, it's so salient, I think there's a lot of reasons. But one is that um, there are news networks that dedicate significant um, effort and resources uh, into ensuring that this is a salient uh, issue and and into ensuring that it's a particularly salient issue, actually, the closer one gets to an election. So the only thing that surprises me about it is that that's, that's the, the case so far from the 2024 election, because typically what happens is that coverage of this issue, so that people don't tire of it, it goes up and up and up. So by the time you get to election day, it's at an inflection point. And then they start talking about something else for a while. Um, and um, and so, uh, so that has to be doing some of the work uh, here as well. Tomorrow, I think in Georgia, the AJC polls have often showed immigration as a significant issue for Georgia. Yeah, and sometimes it might depend on kind of what time it is, yeah, how close we are to a campaign, how much it's kind of risen to the top of the, the national conversation. And sometimes it has to do with party. Um, as Fred said, there are certain cable news networks that tend to focus on this a little more than others. So often you see uh, Republicans, this is a particularly a top issue. Uh, Stephen, one other quick uh, immigration story. We're running out of time. As we saw it, uh, this, I think it was over the weekend, there was a mass effort to uh, by immigrants uh, or hopeful immigrants to cross the border. It, it got a little bit troubling. They were pushed back. Um, by with barricades, by border patrol agents, but it shows uh, the increased desperation of people looking for sanctuary in this country. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, immigration is going to be a policy issue that is never going to be finished because, I mean, immigration is central to how our country was founded and how our country has grown. And uh, it's the, a part of the fabric of American society. And when you look at the state of America and the state of a lot of other countries where you have people willing to take the extreme mental, physical, financial efforts of crossing the border in hopes of seeking sanctuary, you know, it, it's not something that is just going to magically go away. You know, deciding to build a wall, not building a wall, reforming uh, reforming the visa process, reforming other things like that. Like it's always going to be there because there is such an extreme inequality between our country and the rest of the world. Chuck, we're almost out of time, but the fact of the matter is you are not going to run out of business for a very long time. Uh, immigration's never going away. As long as people want to come to our country, we'll be in business. And right now, it's still the best place to come. The thing about that thing at the border that you saw was the video is nobody got in. I mean, that they, they didn't yes. show that part of the video. <clears throat> nobody got in. And that was just a rumor that they were going to let people in. And so desperation drives that issue. All right. Chuck Cook gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Thank you so much to you, Chuck. Stephen Fowler, Fred Smith, Tamar Hallerman. Great conversation. I enjoyed it and learned a lot. I hope the listeners did, too. 
back tomorrow with another brand new show. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.